Welcome to the 73rd episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you actionable analysis, insights, and events that drive growth, and Loose Threads Espresso, your energizing and high-pressure filter for consumer news and context. We also have a newsletter that features the latest open letters to CEOs, podcasts with industry leaders, and news from Loose Threads. Check it all out at loosethreads.com. Joining me today is Natalie Mackey, a co-founder of Winky Lux, a quickly growing beauty brand built around accessible and fun products. Natalie founded the company after realizing the mass market opportunity around drugstore price cosmetics, which were lacking any playful aspects. We're like basically creating little love bombs for consumers. Like that's what we do for a living. We create beautiful little things to make people have a pop of joy. We had a great talk about the brand's founding, why it controls every aspect of the supply chain, and why it's moving into retail. Here's my talk with Natalie Mackey. So why don't we start to talk a bit about your background, and then we can work our way up to this company and then this brand existing and so forth. So I am from the South and sort of between Savannah, Georgia and South Florida, so I have this kind of weird mishmash of upbringing, like just Southeast upbringing. After college, I moved overseas for a year and then ended up in New York, and I've been here for a decade. So I'm finally a New Yorker. <laughs> is that the like, limit? I think the 10 years is where you get to be a proper New Yorker. You can bitch about everything and complain <laughs> about the weather. Welcome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I worked in finance in... Uh, fund and I was the only girl in the whole group pretty much almost in the whole company certainly on the investment side and then because I was the only girl whenever a consumer deal would come along it was like my job to sort of explain why anyone would buy something but I became really obsessed with brands and why brands made people happy and what made one glass worth more than another glass or what made one beauty product worth more than another beauty product. So I became kind of a study of like the emotional connection with brands. I ended up leaving finance, going into brand licensing. So that was kind of the manifestation of that. I started a a small firm. And then about four years ago, there was this big shift that was starting to happen in beauty, mostly around this YouTube world and Instagram was beginning and Obviously, I was spending a ton of time just like trolling through Instagram and thinking there's definitely a difference in like the amount of stuff I'm discovering now. So I wrote the business plan for kind of a completely different company, which was a curation software. Hmm. So I called a friend of mine, Nate Newman, who I'd been friends with for about 13 or 14 years. So... He's like one of those people that I've always known. He was an entrepreneur in the consumer electronics space. He had sold his company, and I was like, you should move to New York. The rent is cheap. The weather is great. I was like totally lying. I <laughs> him. Everyone's so nice. <laughs> yeah. But I sort of convinced him that this would be this really cool business and that there was going to be this personalization factor to discovering beauty. So... We finished up this business plan. We started working on this interface. So we started to pay some developers to work out this tech. And we decided, actually, it was Nate's idea that we should do some surveys and make sure people actually gave a 
mm-hmm. shit about what we were doing. So we interviewed about almost 200 girls between the ages of 16 and 29. And we were just finding people everywhere. So if I had a cousin who was in a sorority, I was getting her whole sorority to participate. But the most interesting data that we got was from these focus groups where we would get these young women together and we would have them fill out these surveys and then we would ask them to start dumping out their makeup bags. And the biggest learning that we found was that no one cared about our platform. (laughs) No one thought they were going to use it. They just didn't see the purpose in it. They enjoyed finding their own beauty products. So we were like, well, good thing we started working on that. But one thing that was really surprising is we kept noticing that there was this consistent message that happened when women were dumping out their makeup bags. And that was about 50 or 60% of their products were drugstore products. Mm -hmm. And they would do this thing where they would apologize for them, which was really strange because if you know beauty manufacturing, you know that there's a lot of really great products at the drugstore. There's actually a lot of stuff that's kind of the same. It's made by the same manufacturers as some of the luxury products. So you had these young women going, oh, I bought this foundation because I ran out of my good stuff. And we just kept noticing this like apologetic attitude towards these products, which were really the products they could afford because we were interviewing 16 to 29 year old Mm -hmm. women. And there is sort of a, you know, wages have been somewhat stagnant for recent college grads. It's pretty expensive to live in the world. You know, spending $500 at Sephora is not in the cards for everybody, particularly women in their mid-20s. So there's something missing in the way this stuff is being marketed to them and the way that they feel about it. There's like this disconnect of feeling proud and excited about a product that you purchased and it's become very commoditized and very much like you had to have it. So you just bought this eyeliner at CVS and that was fine. Mm -hmm. So we kind of set out to create this brand that would be like a luxury feel and a really magical feel for sort of like just above a drugstore price. So a few dollars more than a drugstore product. And that was how Winky Lux was born. And then we found this really cool artsy brand out of Brooklyn called Laka & Co. And we met the founding team and they were super cool and they were actually selling their company. And we ended up buying that business and kind of folding it into our core business. So now we have two brands. And Laka is super cool. It's like very high end. But Winky Lux is kind of our gold star brand and it's the one that's grown a ton but we think a lot of that has to do with kind of where the world is right now it's kind of a balm of happiness so that's what we do we sell happiness very cool (laughs) i guess to back up and we'll work kind of through all that the most recent kind of anchor to this is essence bought polyvore a few weeks ago which was kind of this mood board curation thing list exists in pinterest and tumblr and a lot of these have existed before one, I guess, why do you think they've either worked or not worked? And I guess what led you away from where you were in that original incarnation to not go down that path? The curation platform? Yeah. None of them, to me, at least feel like they've worked perfectly or like as originally intended. Yeah. In theory, marketplaces are great businesses. And for a lot of verticals, they're really important and they're amazing. And they help curate what the customer wants. But when you talk about kind of high margin, really mature industries like beauty, the reason to buy one thing over the other is really truly about the brand and whether or not you feel like 
that brand means something. Like by buying that, you are a certain type of person. You're a fun person. You're an aspirational person. You're a successful person. You're a confident person. So having a relationship with a customer is really about that emotion, is whether or not they they feel that emotional pull towards the brand. And for marketplaces, and I know there are some that work super well because they provide like an amazing experience. But for marketplaces, you're kind of on the backs of those emotional pulls with the brands. Or you're in the way. Or you're in the way. Yeah. And unless you're providing this extraordinary experience, which is hard to do when you have like a $15 price point, it's harder to mm. create this like beautiful, like magical moment when you open up the box. You're sort of competing against like who's a dollar cheaper than the next guy. So I think that would be my hypothesis on why yeah. sometimes they're more challenging to build. Brands are obviously super challenging to build, but long term, if a brand has a really authentic and special point of view and people really love that and it makes them feel something, that's where you have that longevity of a product or a relationship. And it also, I guess, raises a question around department stores, too, or just wholesale in general, which is not a marketplace, but kind of has that same relationship that's somewhat in the way, somewhat propelling, like it's kind of straddling that position. Totally. I think that the department store world is just not offering enough value to that customer. It's not special enough. Not that she won't go and buy something in a store. She will, but it has to be more special. It has to be like a moment, a beautiful thing, Mm -hmm. something to do with her friends or something to show on Instagram or something to spark her imagination and you know get her really kind of fired up about great design or beautiful environments i think if you can't provide that it's a really brutal battlefield yeah okay so this first thing works you do these 200 plus surveys is it obvious to you to go start a brand or like take us in (laughs) that sort of (laughs) i think it was clear that that was where you could have something special with the customer And I think originally we thought, oh, maybe we'll have a couple of brands and we'll maybe we'll have like a site that has multiple brands. And I think that really was our goal for the first six or seven months. And then Winky Lux had this like viral product that came out, which was the Flower Bomb, which is a a lipstick with a flower inside of it. We'd been in Korea and we saw this technology. So we were kind of like the first people to bring it to the U.S. and, you know, take out all the parabens and, like, all the nasties that are in some of them and create, like, a really clean, beautiful version of it. And that just exploded. You know, we started sampling out highlighters and concealers. And then we had our next viral product, which was this amazing concealer called the Peeper Perfect, which is an under-eye concealer. And so all of a sudden, Winky Lux just started to really take off, and the price point was golden, and people were really happy they were getting something special and beautiful, and it came in this, like, filigreed box, and we sent out these little pins that we called the squad pins. So we felt like we were giving these, like, little love gifts to these customers, and it was really working, and I feel like the news cycle is very angry and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of anxiety that is kind of in the world right now everywhere it's not just in the northeast or the south or there's just a lot of sort of like kind of screamy narratives going around and I think this place where you could go even if it was just you got the box you opened it up there was a unicorn themed product inside there was a mermaid product inside there was like beautiful flowers and glitter and things that really made you feel nostalgic and made you feel like you were 
just doing something purely for fun and it didn't have to be a statement. It, you didn't really have to think too hard about it. I feel like that really resonated with mm-hmm. people. So Winky Licks kind of blew up. And so we decided to, instead of go after this multi-brand play to really focus on this special relationship we were building with people. So it sounds like it was straightforward to go, okay, we need to shift from this platform to the brand. When was that realization, like time-wise? It took us about six months to get the brand together. Mm-hmm. And we launched on October 17th of 2015. And so talk through those six months, because you hadn't built a beauty brand before. No. Like, what was that learning curve like? And kind of where did you say, we need to start with this to to work up to the launch? So when I was in licensing, I met quite a few factories. I knew more about the factory process than I did about the brand building process. I knew that brands were valuable. And in that six months, our ignorance, like our naivete was both a hindrance but also a big asset because beauty as a category has typically been a very long lead consumer product. So typically when you're creating a beauty product, the industry is still dominated by like six big companies. And when you're inside one of those companies, it's like anywhere from a year to two years to get a product off the ground. And because I knew more about the actual manufacturing process, I didn't really know that that was the thing. I knew that actually producing the products didn't take that long. Like you could go and you could fill lipsticks pretty quickly. The actual physical making of it just wasn't that intensive. I mean, the formulations were, but those also, especially for a lot of products that are just like mild edits on formulations, so enhancing a color payoff, increasing like or changing a fragrance, doing some new cool colors, all of those processes also were not that mm-hmm. long. It was it was only in the really, really high R and D doctor grade skincare that there was a need for this long, long lead time. So because we were idiots, we were like, well we'll just find these factories that'll work with us and they'll do really fast turn time. So we we met with tons of factories in the first couple of first of all the big factories just didn't want to mess with you and then the little guys were not high quality enough so we finally found this one factory that was really good it's actually owned by a a woman which Hmm. is unusual and our chinese factory is owned by a woman too which is even more unusual like very very unusual Mm -hmm. in china and our chinese factory was like a second generation this hot shot woman in her late 30s and she was like I come from the manufacturing world I'm going to build a badass beautiful factory that has like US grade quality and I need cool happening brands and you tell me what kind of equipment I'm going to buy and you tell me like how we're going to do this so we in essence we really built a lot of our business in step with a few really partner manufacturers but then the other thing we did (laughs) was we (laughs) started to control everything from like the raw materials to the beads that go into the injection molder to the injection molding factory to the dye factory to the fragrance company to the company that makes the little plastic collar to the metalization factory because plastic then gets metalized to the am I am I wearing you out yeah (laughs) this is like half the product to the box factory to the people who make the dye stamp that goes on the box to the people who make the print on top of the plastic so this was anything but like full package this was absolutely the opposite of turnkey (laughs) but what that did for us is because we didn't know what we were doing instead of going to a big sort of marquee factory and saying like 
all right, show us your new innovation for the next three years. Right. And we're going to pick this product, this product, and this product, and we'll see it a year and a half from now. Right. We were basically the manufacturers. We were building out our own kind of like really low-grade tech to kind of like manage this whole supply chain. And that let us become a lot faster. And it also let us control what was in our products. Mm -hmm. It let us control those relationships a lot better. So I think that, like, if I was, you know, teaching someone, like, and for anyone who's listening who wants to start a makeup company, don't necessarily do it this way because it's really hard. And you could probably begin a brand with just a turnkey product. However, because we did that in the beginning, it really like long term, yeah. it's been a huge asset for us. And so how did you figure out where you wanted to start product wise? How many SKUs? Like, how did the launch plan, I guess, come together from both the product side, then also you knew the price point pretty well, it sounds like, but also then like, how would the brand itself manifest? We started with lipsticks, because they were just so fun. And we figured that that was a place that people would try. And then I was at an innovation show. And there was a raw material that had actually been used in the industry for a long time. It's just crushed diamonds. Hmm. So it's like milled diamond powder. And it's been used in anti-aging products for a long time. And the idea was, let's make a complexion powder, but we can put this diamond powder inside of it. And that story really sold well for our customer. So we started with lipsticks. Our very next thing was complexion. So we really didn't have like a five-year rollout of like, and now we will go into this category. And now we will go into this category. We kept listening to our customers, too, and trying to understand what they wanted. And when you're really small, the best thing that first year was that we were involved in everything. So it was me who was answering the Instagram questions and me who answering the emails. And, you know, Nate was taking customer service phone calls. And, you know, we were like a team of five people. And we got to hear a lot from our customers. And if something was messed up in beauty, people will tell you yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> pretty fast. I'm sure. So remind me, the launch date was? October 17th, 2015. Okay. How'd it go? It went really well. We actually launched at BeautyCon, which is a big conference yeah. for beauty lovers. And we were pretty sure that we would sell nothing and that we would get a chance to get some feedback from our customers. And our packaging is all really highly metalized, so it's all really shiny, and it kind of has that, like, barracuda effect, you know? <laughs> it's, like, bright, shiny mm -hmm. things. So we set up, and we ended up getting this insane line, and people were, like, losing it over the product. And somewhere along the way, we talked to a Today Show producer. I think it was actually, like, a, a production assistant that was there for fun, we were doing rainbow eyebrows. That was our activation for the day. So we had a palette, and we still have this palette. It, like, it actually sells out all the time when we bring it back. But it's a palette where you can turn your eyebrows into rainbow. Hmm. You didn't even know you needed that. <laughs> so we were putting that on people, and we ended up getting on the Today Show with that. So that was a big boon for us. You mentioned the hit with kind of the viral product. Was that something you set out to do? Was it something you stumbled upon? Like, how has your understanding and kind of intention around product creation and you know, those mechanisms kind of evolved? There's all of these tools that you can use to try and predict trends. We've never found them that useful. I mean, it's been our thesis to, like, throw it into the market and see if our customer likes it and try to remain really fast and really inventory light. So, no, we did not know which product would be viral. 
I don't think anyone knows because you can predict that highlighters are huge or you can predict that contouring is big or glitter is big this season. And that's all cool. Like you don't want to just go off the reservation, but you never really know when you're going to hit that product that consumers are just going to be like, this is it. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. Everyone must have this. So what we found to be the most effective has been in the creation process. We have a really fast creative process and we try to get all of our stuff signed off on really quickly because that's another bottleneck in manufacturing. (laughs) The process we use is we always talk about if you were – Alice in Wonderland and you fell down the rabbit hole and you were in Wonderland and you walked into like the beauty store in Wonderland, like Sephora Wonderland. (laughs) What types of products would you find there? And that has been what I found the most effective way to drive cool ideas because then the team is incentivized to think up things that are more special. How do we add like a tiny bit of magic? Because that's what the brand is about. The brand is about magic and fun and you know we have like a primer that's whipped so it's like a whipped cream primer Hmm. so the three things we ask is is it really beautiful can it be shared on social media because that's the way our customers tell each other about the products and word of mouth is still the best way to build a cosmetics brand is it really 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 beautiful is it really special does it have good quality like is it a beautiful product kind of inside and out and then the third one is can we put it through our supply chain? Mm -hmm. So we kill probably 50% of the products that are ideated throughout whatever funnel it comes into. But the ones that survive fit those three things. I mean, we screw up once in a while too. (laughs) Most of the time, the ones that survive fit those three. And so I guess as you look to the business, was your goal to create hit after hit on the trend cycle? Was it to build something more stable that grew over time based on more core products? Like, how did you figure out, did you want to, like, run or walk or chase? How would trend kind of permeate the business and to what degree would it do so? We started with a lot of trend. And the reason for that is that when we first started, we had a really hard time getting any funding. So we bootstrapped hmm. for the first 20 months. We bootstrapped. Yeah. Why and was it? Why? <laughs> was it the traditional like businesses white guys don't understand or? A little bit of that. I mean, I think less than 4% of venture capital is given to women yeah. owned businesses. It's um, terrible. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So we did the whole VC circuit. I came from finance, so I thought, this is my jam. I'm going to totally yeah. blow these people away. But I had some really odd questions. And 90% of the people we pitched were dudes. And not that dudes aren't great investors. I mean, we have dudes on our cap table now that are awesome. But it's a learning curve that you have to teach someone about the beauty industry. So, I mean, I had one guy tell me (laughs) that we were crazy and we were letting go of half the market because we didn't target men or sell to men. I was like, this is a beauty industry. (laughs) We had a prestige VC, like one of the biggest and the best and supposedly the smartest, send us an entire breakdown of like products he would cut. And the first product he would cut accounted for like millions of dollars in sales. It was like one of our most beloved products. He was like, my girlfriend, this is her feedback. And we're like, you live in San Francisco in a, you know, $10 million townhouse in Pacific Heights. Like, you're not in the world of normal people. (laughs) People love this product. It's really fun and beautiful and magic. And that kind of is a problem in the investing world. You have a lot of this like New York, San Francisco based stuff. And they forget about 
the it's rest a, of the country exactly, in the world. <laughs> exactly. And it's no surprise, like every shaving company gets funded and every dude centric company yeah. gets funded. Harry's is the most funded digitally native startup ever. $475 million. Oh my gosh. I didn't even realize it was that, yeah. that much invested. Yeah. And not that they're a bad company. They're great, but I don't know if they need $500 million. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so we were on the struggle bus. Luckily, we had a few shekels between us that we could kind of scrape together. I convinced my boyfriend at the time to give me like a fifty thousand dollar loan. I mean, all of this, by I the way, I is hope like he wishes <laughs> that was equity. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. He ended up investing okay. in our first <laughs> round too, and actually has done really, really well on it. That's um, good. So that's good. He's down down my fiance, which is awesome. Oh, okay. <laughs> So luckily, <laughs> when, luckily when it went well. We sometimes we joke about that, like what would have happened if it yeah. really just crapped out. But we were just like kind of hand to mouth at the time, and trend driven products were really cheap. CAC customer acquisition mm. cost on trend products was really low. So at this point, we're about fifty fifty trend. What we call replenishment products. So. The way that we look at our calendars and the way we look at the ideation process is 50% of our products need to be the things like concealer and brow and things that you buy again. And what we kind of try to do is bring you in with some of the magical lip products or color that's really fun and, you know, sassy. We have these amazing palettes that have kittens all over them. So it's like a little pop of joy and then kind of hit you with a sample of a tinted moisturizer, a brow pencil, something that you need on a day-to-day. And it's a really good price point. So once people kind of sample it and try it, then we move that customer into like a true like part of the squad. Like the squad are our people who are repeat customers. Mm -hmm. They are coming back to us, you know, pretty consistently. Now we obviously, as a much bigger company, (laughs) are are able to do that. But I think the reason we were so trend-driven in the beginning, a lot of it had to do with the fact that we needed to have real revenue in Mm -hmm. order to, like, keep the brand going. So you launched October 2015. Yes. Talk through kind of 2016. You're out in public now. This thing's growing. Yes. Talk through that year. So we had this teeny little office inside our PR firm's office. So we had four people. We met a product developer at a factory. She was presenting us new innovation at this like very fancy Italian factory. And she was so cool that we were like, you should probably just come and work with us. Like, you're really cool. And this company is like so old school. Mm. And she got really excited about it. And she, to this day, is our head of product and is a partner in the company. That's awesome. So it was the four of us. So me, Nate, Kristen, and the intern Tatiana. So we were she just gets a do- name. Yes. <laughs> so we were just doing everything. And we knew that we needed to get to a million dollars in sales because this was just something in my mind that was like in the first year we have to do at least a million dollars. We ended up doing a lot more than that, but I knew that that was where you had a heartbeat. Mm. You know, like as a business, hitting that million dollar threshold means that you hit some economies of scale and you probably aren't going to die. The first six months was like, do not die. (laughs) Just like keep this baby alive. So it was super scrappy. I mean, I did the Instagram, all the email marketing, all the performance marketing. I had to take a GA class to understand it. I'd never worked in Google Analytics before. 
you know, we were kind of doing it all. We were like going out to the factories. We were flying to China. We were going to trade shows to try and convince people to work with us because now it's really nice because factories like come and present to you yeah. and they like take you to dinner. Yeah, yeah. But back then we were like, please, sir. Yeah. <laughs> May we we'll please? pay for your meal. Yeah. <laughs> so for the first six months, we were really focused on that. And then went to Korea, saw that cool innovation we were getting really close to that million dollar mark. We were like starting to sell a lot of lipsticks. Uh, we had some really wild colors that were really fun. Our product developer was like, you know, we could do this flower thing. It's totally gimmicky. Like, I don't know if people are going to love it, but let's try it. So we're like, okay, fine. We'll do a run of 3,000 of these and we'll see if they work. So we convinced our factory to like kind of reverse engineer this without any of the parabens or the nasties that could be in some of this stuff and it just like blew up like it was on the zoe report and pop sugar and refinery 29 did a huge article on it and all of a sudden all this press started mm. to like turn into real serious sales yeah can you pinpoint why i think it was just magic it was like <laughs> cool to look at and it was 14 dollars. yeah and press i always tell people to get a PR firm. If you can scrap together and get an even an inexpensive PR consultant, which is basically we were on like life support with our PR firm. We were like, please give a throw us a little feature here and there. You know, we'll give you a little bit of money. Now we're a really great customer of theirs. Yeah. But at the time they were really kind and were working really hard for us. It's such cheap customer acquisition and you get a chance to really build your cookie pool and understand who your customer is and, you know, see the people who are starting to follow you on Instagram. It's such a great way to kind of dip your toe into the water, even if you're just out there calling reporters yourself and just sending products out to beauty editors. I think it's a really great way to start the process to understand who you're actually selling to because you may think you're selling to someone and it turns out you're not mm -hmm. and you may think certain products are newsworthy but maybe they're not and you know press begets press so then they wanted to talk about the founder and they wanted to talk about the rest of the company so that was kind of how it exploded yeah. we had our first like fifty thousand dollar sales day and that for us was we'd never seen anything like that we were like, holy smokes, like maybe we're not going to be broke and lose all of our friends and family's money. <laughs> nice. And so, so when did that product launch? That launched in September of 2016. 2016. Yeah. And talk just briefly about what is the release schedule? Like how often do you put new stuff out, update, restock? Because you mentioned kind of the inventory lightness before, but how do you approach that piece? Yeah, we launch about every two weeks, depending. So we try to have like a one big launch per month and then some ancillary launches that are more fun driven so we might launch a new color range or a new eyeshadow palette or something and then in addition that same month we'll launch like a big skincare hybrid or something that's like a higher r&d higher mm -hmm. retention type of product and then 2017 comes along i guess talk through that year and then i'm curious when Tell me when we get to brand number two starts to come into the picture, and then I have a bunch of questions totally. about that. So brand number two came into the picture in 2016. Okay, it did. We found Laka & Co., and it was this 
super cool really artsy brand and it had this voice that was super strong I was actually talking to a friend of mine that was an investment banker and she said I came across this small brand and one of the founders is moving to Australia she's moving back to Australia and they it's got this crazy following and people love it and it's got some really nice intellectual property mm. but they're not quite sure what they're going to do with it and they have like a rock star kind of salesperson but she can't do it all on her own mm-hmm. so we ended up acquiring the brand were you we looking used- We were not really looking. It was just a really cool opportunity. And we used debt to acquire it. Hmm. So it was another way that we felt like we could grow without, because we were unfunded. So we used basically venture debt to Hmm. buy this company. It was a, a lower price. And what was really amazing about that is we got some street cred for it. And then on top of that, we got Nicole, who's our kind of EVP of wholesale, and she's opened up Ulta and Sephora and all these like massive accounts that we have now. It was almost like in a way we acquired her. And then the lack of brand still grows. It's much smaller than mm-hmm. Winky Lex now, but it's a really cool brand. And I know if people are listening and they know Laka, they love Laka. And so talk a bit about the channel piece in terms of it sounds like you do do wholesale as yeah. selling direct. How did that kind of evolve from the beginning and where is it today? We have a pretty substantial wholesale business. Digital is where we put most of our talent and our money. We always knew we would have this kind of omni-channel approach for two reasons. One, actually, it's very difficult to scale past a market. So in beauty, it's still less than 10% of the market is digital. So 90-something percent of the market is in person. So you've got 10% and half of that is Amazon. So it's really only 5% that's like D to C. Amazon's really driving a lot of that digital growth. And because I had kind of seen some of these like from a business case study, I knew it would be difficult to scale past a certain point without having that wholesale relationship. Also, our customer, we wanted to be where she is. So it's always a battle. It's always like, do you do wholesale and let someone have the margin versus you know, continuing to just put that same margin dollar into direct. The problem is so many of our customers have found us in those stores. So we get to touch people in places we probably never would have been advertising. So we always knew we wanted to do that. And then the other thing was that our first round of outside like institutional capital, we were doing a like pretty decent business. I mean, small in the beauty world, yeah. but in the startup world, pretty good. It was like four something million in revenue when we first took any outside capital. So having some of those wholesale relationships helped bootstrap it. You know, they were like big chunks of wins that mm-hmm. we could then turn into digital advertising dollars because I think the misconception is that it's cheaper to acquire a customer online, but that is the opposite. <laughs> yeah, It's much cheaper to acquire a customer at retail. However, the value of the business is in that special direct relationship. So yeah. I like that as a combination. It's not for everybody. I mean, yeah. I've definitely heard founders say like, we will never touch wholesale and great, cool. <laughs> you know, and, and then there are lots of beautiful, amazing companies that are built strictly in the backs of yeah. wholesale. So we're kind of this in-between. On the apparel side, wholesale generally shrinking as a channel. Is it still growing on the beauty side? Ulta's going to open a thousand doors, yeah. I think, in the next four so years. So it's almost can't even compare the channels across category. It's crazy. I think all of it goes back to this moment with the consumer, this like emotional connection that you have with buying a beauty product. It's very sensorial. You want to smell it, touch it, feel it. There's something magic that happens in a beauty store 
it's an emotional purchase. And I think that it can be really more intense in person. Not to say that, you know, some of our customers who found us online are some of our best customers, but I think that we don't want to ignore 90% of the market. Yeah. That's just my thesis as a CEO. Yep. It doesn't mean it's always the right one for everybody. I mean, we opened our own first store this year that's a Winky Luck store. Mm. We opened two, actually. We did a pop-up at Roosevelt Field Mall in Long Island. And then we have our showroom, which is at our Lori side office. And one of the most interesting things we found was that you know, retail is a hard business. <laughs> that was one, one thing we found. It is really labor-intensive and... I think, you know, when we were going through it, we were like, what are we doing? You know, we can sell so much more online in a day than, you know, just dealing with this little store. But something magic started to happen when we dug into the data of the people we were finding in the store. And the store was making money. It wasn't a ton of money because it was a really tiny store, but it was making money. And people, like when we were comparing cohorts, people who had discovered us online in Long Island, the same day as someone who discovered us in the store, the person who discovered us in the store was three times more likely to repeat. Wow. So we know that being in a Winky Luck store, there's something special about it. Like there's flower walls and neon signs and it smells good. And <laughs> there's like all these little magical products that you can touch and play with. And we even have like little halo lights, which are not expensive. They're just little selfie lights. But we would see, you know, groups of women kind of after brunch, like they popping over to like take these kind of perfectly lit selfies mm. against the flower wall. So we know that there's still something special in retail. It's just changing. Yeah. And then, so we talked about retail a bit. Any other kind of 2017 developments that just take us into the present? I think the retail was really interesting. Ulta was really interesting. Yeah. And Sephora Europe. So we went from getting accounts that were $50,000 in a year to millions of dollars in a year. And that was a huge turning point. You know, now our factory is buying equipment to deal with our capacity. Now we're, we're able to, you know, have much more efficient working capital because those are very backable receivables. So that was kind of like a big turning point. Mm -hmm. Plus, we hired our first performance marketer in August of last year. And she's a huge badass and she takes no prisoners. And so she has really created a really great performance funnel, you know, that we can start seeing like real growth in digital because we were just kind of like, hey, if you like it, come on down and buy it. Where we weren't customizing the site, we weren't, you know, segmenting emails. We were really kind of like children playing business for one point. Yeah. Like real performance marketers hear that and they like cringe, you know, like we were probably leaving a lot of money on the table yeah. by not really optimizing our experience. We also got more money to once we closed that first round of capital, we were able to like really make our customer experience a lot better too. So we could hire, you know, a junior person to answer questions on Instagram. So now we do a lot of customer service on Instagram, which is a place that a lot of our customers want to have customer service. Mm -hmm. We were able to like upgrade our boxes and make them much more beautiful. They're now keepsake boxes. You can turn them inside out and keep little mm. things inside of them. They're really pretty. They're floral and like sparkly. We became a better company. Yeah. And brand. Yeah. And, and we also kind of boiled down like what is this brand about too? I mean, we always knew it was about fun. We always knew it was about beauty products that made you feel like happy. But our mission statement now is really clear in the office, which is we create joy 
through products, content, experiences. So I think that is like very powerful. And it took us some time to kind of boil that down. And so I guess on that note, what is your goal for the brand from a scale perspective? We're growing a lot right now. (laughs) Like It's a lot of growth. I need to hire a lot more people. Sorry to don't cut that out. Please. (laughs) Please apply. We are opening five stores. Wow. So they're really going to be super cool. They're really going to be experience first stores. They are places where our community can gather. Beauty lovers, young and old can come. There's going to be some really magical activations. We have entire rooms of flowers, like almost a little museum of ice cream-esque. Yeah. Truly, they're about experiencing what it's like mm-hmm. to be inside the Winky Lux world, Winky world. And I think that people are really craving that right now. And I think it's going to be really fun. That's our big play for this year. Five sort of not so small stores. And they're stores that have never been done before because it's like, you know, you walk through like all these different activations Mm -hmm. and get, you know, these like photo machines that take your picture. And so they're much more about like the experience and the gram. Yeah. (laughs) And also about parties. We built a lot of our most loyal customers by having these little networking events at our showroom Mm -hmm. or at our store. And I think that's garnered a lot of goodwill because we want to be a place that girls and boys, beauty lovers of all types can come and kind of like play and have fun together. And I think that's something that's kind of needed too from a macro trend standpoint. Can this get too big? Or like, do you worry it gets to a point where it loses control or or potency or any of that? Luckily, the brand is so bizarre. (laughs) It's so crazy. I think that the brand will stay pretty concentrated. My big problem now is that we'll go to about 40 employees this year and I don't get to spend as much time with people. And so that's somewhat stressful to me as a CEO who's run a small company before, but never a company with 40 employees, like learning how to bring everyone back to those core things. I mean, right now we have our core values on the wall. We're getting a big neon sign that says our mission statement. So it's tough. They're, they're like high class problems, but they're real problems. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. scaling is a real thing. It's a real issue. And making sure that everyone knows that we're like basically creating little love bombs for consumers. Like that's what we do for a living. We create beautiful little things to make people have a pop of joy. It gets tougher as yeah. you get like layer upon layer. Right. You know, when you only meet with your product people once a week because you're doing something else. Nonsense like this. <laughs> yeah, because you're, I mean, this is fun for me. <laughs> but yes, you're dealing with finance stuff yeah. or you're dealing with HR stuff. And that's the other thing too, is making sure that you keep that culture alive in the company. I think one of the things that's really hard is I'm sort of psychotic about culture. Like we have like a no asshole policy, like no mean girl policy. And I think that's another kind of, it's like a growing point where you get to a point where you're like, this person's really talented, but we have to let them go because they're not nice. Mm-hmm. Those were all things that I kind of had to learn. Yeah. So I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> What's been the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned building the company? Oh, the most expensive lesson I've learned? Keeping someone because they're really smart and they're not nice. I just think that it's so cliche, that one bad apple. But man, it's true. And it's really hard because, you know, you go to fire someone and you're like, wow, you've done a really great job, but you got to go because you're just a dick. (laughs) So 
Yeah. <laughs> That's a very expensive lesson. And I'm glad that I sort of like bucked up and did it then. I mean, it took me too long, though. Yeah. It was too long. Another big expensive lesson. Hiring too slowly because I'm just afraid of that same thing. Not bringing the people in that we mm-hmm. need at the moment. You know, last year our CAC was really low, like our customer acquisition cost, which is, you know, that's like the lifeblood of a digital marketing company. And our CAC was way too low, meaning that we left a lot of money on the table. Like, had we invested more in that, we would have sold a lot more. And maybe we would have paid a little bit more for those customers, but we still would have made money on the customers Mm -hmm. and we would have brought them into the fold. So from a performance standpoint, I should have you know, taken that risk, really invested in that team, given them the free reign to screw stuff up and let them start bringing people in. That was one. And I guess that was a cheap thing yeah. because I didn't spend money. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it was expensive overall because I think we could have done more in digital in our last quarter. Where's the name from? It really was just made up. I was just thinking about fun names that were completely like non-derivative. So I didn't really like names that sounded like everything else. I wanted kind of a fake name or like a pretend name because I knew that the brand was about being in this like fantasy world. I wanted something easy to remember. I think that I had watched that movie Best in Show, which was like one of my favorite movies. And Winky is the dog that wins. Oh, really? (laughs) So (laughs) I think that that was just in my mind. And it was just a fun word to say, Winky Lux. So, and there, there was a whole thing about like luck and winking mm. and Lux meet being Latin for light. And so like luck and light. I wish that I had a more like succinct story about it, but I'm pretty sure it was just subconsciously thinking about best in show and words that are fun to say. <laughs> yeah. I guess we, we talked a bit about it, but like as you look forward next one, two, three years, what are you most excited about and what's on the horizon? I'm most excited about what the new cheap form of customer acquisition is and i'm really excited Being retail yeah okay. <laughs> but like five or six years ago you had really inexpensive facebook ads yeah. and a lot of companies were able to scale with those ads and then you had influencer marketing but now facebook is obviously fully priced yeah. and, influ- and only getting higher yeah and influencer marketing it works but it's now also fully priced. So now there's even like indexes and things like that for how much to pay an influencer, which influencers to seed. And we've actually don't pay influencers anymore. We did in the very beginning, but now we just seed out to them. I just don't see that as like some big opportunity. I think that there's something on the horizon. There's got to be something else that's new and perhaps that is experience stores. But I think that's like what makes me really excited is that stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. You can read the full transcript of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com. Feel free to also leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And thanks to George Drake Jr. for editing this episode. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Gabby Sloan of Ollie, Jeff Denby of Renewal Workshop, and Ashley Merrill of Lunia. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.